Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. This is episode 977, my interview with Marco Evangelisti. And we're talking about the great turning. Marco, welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. Great to have you here. Well, thank you all for inviting me. A little bit of uh, weed whacking going on at your place today, so hopefully that doesn't interrupt our conversation today too much. We, you can't control everything. Can't, can't control most things, I think. But um, I guess we can control a lot of things. But, mate, give us a little bit of an introduction as to who you are and what you're all about. Okay. I am a mathematician and uh, landed in California to study economics and finance. And then I spent uh, the following 20 years work, working in the finance industry as a quant. As a what? And uh, 10 years later... Uh, actually, 10 years ago, I left the industry and now I'm doing something completely different. Hmm. So what are you doing now? I'm working on The Great Turning. I don't know if your audience know about The Great Turning. is the no. shift in society yeah. and all its institutions required to bring about an environmentally regenerative, socially just, and spiritually fulfilling human presence on planet Earth. All right. Is this actually not, happening, or is this is this just something that you? No, absolutely. This is uh, you know all the people that are working now towards a better society and a better world are part of the great turning, hmm. and the goal is to transform society so that we can be on this planet for the long haul, and we can live in a you know healthy and peaceful society where everybody's needs are taken care, and where the environment can continue to prosper. Uh, for the long haul. That's so, basically. So when you talk about regenerative, you're talking about in in respects to making sure we're we're sustainable and and not self defeating. Well, it's the issue of changing institutions, right? We're talking about changing the economic system so that it's more fair. We're talking about changing the money and banking system, the education system, the financial system. My focus uh, in the last. Uh, really 10 years has been trying to shift the financial system in a direction uh, that is more in balance with nature and doing no harm. Yeah. I'm also very interested in regenerative agriculture and how we can use the restoration of the fertility of the soil as a way to deal with climate change and global warming and with, um, you know, food security and, uh, you know, uh, being able to grow food that is nutrient dense and uh, can feed everybody. So sounds like a lot yeah. on your plate. What um, I, I suppose being a mathematician has has a uh, you know I can see some connections there. But how does it all connect to your to your profession? That's a very good question because I don't think my mathematical skills you don't are really? of great use right now. I mean. To a certain extent, I got into finance because it was a way to use my quantitative skills. But mm. mathematics requires abstraction. And what we need to do now is almost reverse that process and understand the complexity of life on Earth without simplifying it to just numbers. And uh, I guess the, the ultimate example of that is finance, right, where we just think about our financial return and we want to you know, reduce risk in our portfolio, and that's all we care about. But in reality, investments are happening in the real world. They're affecting our societies, they're affecting our natural environment, 
mm. and they're affecting each other. And so it's interesting because I am not using my quantitative skills in what I'm doing right now. I'm doing a lot of, you know, organizing, teaching and, and so on. Yeah. I would have, anyway, that's, um, how do you, how do you focus your attention when you've got, I mean, that's such a big goal to try and change the institutions around how our economy operates and, and making it more fair. But how do you manage to, to juggle so much in your plate if you're dealing with all these, these ma massive goals? Well, I'm a good teacher. And so the task I gave myself in 2009 when yeah. I left the finance industry was a first to understand why we had a financial crisis. It turns out that the reason why we had a financial crisis in 2007 was because of the collapse of the shadow banking system. And very few people know about banking and even fewer people know about shadow banking. And I realized that um, after uh, leaving the finance industry, I joined a number of movements like the Occupy Wall Street movement and the permaculture movement and the slow money movement and the public banking movement and realized all these people that were trying to change the system did not really necessarily understand how it worked. Hmm. They, you know, didn't go to business school. They didn't spend 20 years in finance. And so what I started doing is uh, teaching people in layman terms how those large systems work. And the reason why I was doing that is because I strongly believe that in order to have a truly democratic society, people need to understand how the large systems that are affecting our lives work so much so that they would feel empowered to challenge them and transform them. Yeah. So that's that's how it started, right? And in the last couple of years, really, I focused more on finance and helping investors with investor education and with uh, trying to make them aware of the non-financial impact that investments have on our life and the world around us. Okay, so listening, audience listening in today, where do we start about educating us on this um, this this greater turning? The great turning. Well, uh, let's start simply. Um, the first step is if you care about something, right? Mm. Make sure that your investments are not working against your own values and purposes. Okay. So, for example, if you care about um, you know, regenerative agriculture, make sure you're not invested in Monsanto or the companies that, you know, the, the mega food companies in the United States. Or if you care about the environment, you know, maybe mining companies shouldn't have a place in your portfolio. Yeah. And I know that in um, Australia, of course, there are some very large mining companies. Mm. Yeah. So we need to start with our values then and really honing in on, on what we value and making sure we align not only what we do, but what we, um, how we invest um, as well with those values. Right. And that's actually a hard thing to do because to a certain extent, the finance industry has made it very easy for us not to pay attention or know exactly what our investments are doing out there in the world. Mm. Right, because yeah. we have financial advisors, uh, money managers, mutual funds, and so on. We, you know, somebody else is taking care of it. Right, we don't have to worry about it. And I'd like to use a parallel and talk about the food system, for example. Right, uh, the the industrial food system has made it really easy for us to feed ourselves very 
conveniently and very cheaply. Mm. And the apotheosis of that is the TV dinner. I don't know if in Australia they know about TV dinners, but in the United States it's something that you buy already in a aluminum container. No, actually it cannot be aluminum. In a container, let's say, you put it in your in your microwave oven, you cook it for 60 seconds, you eat the food, and then you don't even have to wash dishes. You can toss the whole thing in the trash. Yeah. Very convenient, very cheap. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, now we find ourselves being obese and sick because it turns out that highly processed foods and very cheap food is not good for us. Yeah. And so, you know, the recommendation is, well, read the ingredients, find out what you're putting in your body. And I think something similar should be applied also to the world of investing. Right mm. now, most of us don't even know what is in, in our portfolio. Mm. And if you don't know, chances are your investments are probably extractive and probably doing something that you might not agree with if you were to pay closer attention. So do you think some of these bigger companies or the companies that we're investing in needs to have like a, a basically one pager about what they do and the impacts of what they do, just like you would go into a a fast food store and they'll have the calories of the meal that you're about to eat? Well, there is now a whole industry that provides ratings. You know, they look at uh, ESG rating, which is the environmental, the social, and the governance rating for a particular company. Um, I believe that, uh, you know, publicly traded companies are very complex. Their operations are difficult to understand fully. Yeah. And so... Personally, you know, I prefer to invest in things I know and I can touch and smell and recognize. So that's why I've been doing a lot of work with Slow Money, which is a movement to move some of our money close to where we live with the ultimate goal of restoring the fertility of the soil, which is basically means funding uh, agriculture and farmers and food producers and so on. And when you do that, you actually know where your money is and what it's doing out there. You don't need a third party to tell you, you know, that your money is not doing any damage out there. You can actually see the impacts of your own investments. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think when we look at values too, and I guess, you know, yeah, I absolutely understand it. Like if you're passionate about the environment, then perhaps you're not going to invest in a company that um, doesn't have that sort of same value. But I guess there's a lot of other people out there that... Um, you know, are passionate about money and, and wealth. And, um, you know, if that's their value, then does it matter who they invest with? Well, that would be a little bit sad, wouldn't it? Mm. I mean, because to some extent, But isn't that is how the tool. current economy works? Like, we all we, we all are, are out there I, with I a know. time I mean, deficiency. Uh, are you doing the podcast for money or because you're curious about ideas and meeting people? Well, I'm curious about, you know, about learning and, and self-improvement and... And all that. So right. this podcast isn't so a money-making machine. Money is not what motivates you, right? Not in my instance, no. no. Exactly. So, and probably a lot of your guests are not necessarily single-mindedly motivated by money. Now, money is important. Of course, mm. you need to have a certain amount to meet your basic needs. But uh, it, it's fascinating. I read a book uh, called uh, Richest Stan mm. By a guy who was a Wall, uh, Wall Street journalist, he was fascinated by the rich, and he, you know, interviewed all these rich people, and he divided them up in three classes. They're like the poor rich; they have between ten million and a hundred million to their names. Those are the poor ones. Then the middle class rich, you know, hundred million to a billion, and then you know the billionaires. 
And he asked them a, lot, a number of questions. And one of them was, do you feel financially secure? A strange question to mm. ask rich people. And he basically found out that the billionaire said, yeah, we, we feel financially secure. We got it. But everybody else said that they did not feel financially secure. And when they were asked what it would make them financially secure, they thought having twice as much as what they had would make them feel financially secure. So if you think about this, you know, you ask somebody who has a $10 million and they would say, no, we, we're not financially secure, but we feel that with 20, we would. Hmm. But then you ask somebody who has $20 million and they don't feel financially secure, but they think that with 40 million, they would. Hmm. In other words, if you're only focusing on money, then you're really in the positional game. So your value is set not by a absolute amount of money, but your relative position to the people you're competing with. And there is no limit, right? I mean, until you get to the billion dollars. So if your what motivates you in life is money, you are on a never ending treadmill where you will most likely never feel financially secure. Yeah. And uh, where you derive your money, not uh, your, your value, not by some meaningful activity or engagement, but just buy a number in your bank. And if that's the case, it's very sad. And I hope, you know, yeah, absolutely. grow up. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, we've, we've heard the stories about, you know, people with money still aren't happy. Like you just said, still don't feel financially secure. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't bring you fulfillment in life, the, the money, but the whole, and this is just my thought right now, but the whole economy that we operate in seems to be based on money and it creates this culture of I need money because I want more things, stuff, whatever it is, more experiences and money provides me that. So I'm going to work harder. I'm going to go chase after it harder. I'm going to make more investments so I can earn more and have more. And therefore, then I'll be somehow self-satisfied, which most people get to the end and find that it hasn't done anything. But um, isn't that how this society operates? Isn't that why to we're having extent, this conversation? You know, because we've, we've commodified everything, right? Then uh, you do need money to meet any specific needs you have. So you need food. You know, very few people grow their own food. You have to buy it. Uh, you have a kid. And you have to go to and work because now you need money. So now you need also to pay for a childcare hmm. uh, person, right? So most of the meals were cooked at home, let's say, 100 years ago. Now most of the meals we eat are uh, eaten out. So we, we are the, the economic system itself has led to the progressive commodification of services and things we were doing for each other as part of the caring economy or the gift exchange economy. Now mm. we have to exchange money for that. Yeah. So there is certainly, uh, you know, a, a, a drive that we feel to, you know, earn money to meet our basic needs. Yeah. But there is a, a point. Well, actually, I think there's a drive yeah. to earn money, not to meet our basic needs, because I think if, if most people sat back, they'd realize that their basic needs aren't that hard to meet. The drive and our chase for more money is is to meet anything above that basic need right and that is to a certain extent you know the the capitalist system works based on growth so the capitalist system has to grow the economy has to grow there's like this mantra like all the politicians are saying we need to grow the economy the economy is slowing down oh terrible we, we really need to grow the economy 
That is because the capitalist system works that way. You start with a certain amount of money and you have to have more money later on. And so the system itself is designed to induce you to feel a certain lack that is met by the new products and new services that are being created all the time. And so I think in part what um, drives consumerism and the desire for you know a bigger and better car or a bigger and better house is something that uh, we've been programmed to feel. You know, we've been. If you look at the ads, you know, you will never match <laughs> what you see in the ads, and so you feel that there is something lacking with your life, and all of a sudden you're given the solution to it, which is buy this car or buy this house or, right? And so, but a big part of that is is it goes back to that point you touched on earlier about the the people that well all of us i guess we we base most of our life on on externals and on others and so this whole idea of there's a new big car out we don't really need a new car because we've already got one but because these other people in our in our lives have have that we feel we need it too you know so we're all basing our lives on on external measures rather than intrinsic measures yeah Sorry to it's cut also, you off. Uh, there is, a, I don't know if you know, René Girard, he's a, an amazing uh, philosopher and thinker, and he talked about mimetic desire and how we human do not desire something in isolation, but we desire what other people desire. Hmm. So you need to have three things. You need, you know, there's a person and then there's an object, and then you need to have a third entity desiring the same object for you to want it. And so, of course, this is at the very core of advertising and so on and keeping up with the Joneses, right? Why would you get uh, a yacht if nobody has one? I mean, you would get it because somebody you admire uh, has one, right? And so the the peer pressure is in part hmm. predicated on the fact that our desires are mediated by the desires of others. Yeah. But again, I mean, we can have that that great turning if only we could check in with our ourselves and our values and start realigning how we operate based on those values but i mean financially if we look at the economy i go back to your food example i just read a book about the gut microbiome and and the foods that we should and shouldn't eat and it's extensive it's amazing um but i just look at it and go Yes, I'd like to get closer to that, and that's maybe the, the the direction is better than not doing anything at all, but trying to get closer to it. But I still feel that based on how we have created this society, it's harder and harder for people to do. Just as you know, well, yeah, I'd like to cook home meals every night, but I need to work longer hours so I can have that money to pay for all these nice new things that I've I've come to believe I need. Right. So how do we yeah, break that? I, right. And it's interesting. You know, I've ended up. Uh, having a different trade-off between money and time. Like mm. I have a lot of free time. Oh, I lost you there. Hello, Marco. We've just had a I really value. You, that. Sorry, Marco. I just lost you there for a couple of minutes. Oh, couple of minutes. Not a couple of minutes. Probably right. probably twenty seconds. <laughs> I. When was the last time you heard me say something? Well, you just started talking after I finished. Okay. Uh, no, I was saying that uh, the, uh, you know, sometimes we are enthralled by these ideas, right? So we need to ask ourselves, why are we working so hard? 
at a certain point you are trading our life hours for something yeah and and we're trading them for money so that then we can use that money to enjoy life hmm. but there is a point where we're using too many of our uh, hours to get what we think is the means for us to enjoy life when we could enjoy life right now yeah if we didn't get into that trick you know and so uh you know i personally you know enjoy having freedom in terms of my time and i never felt compelled to keep up with the joneses uh you know i remember when i was working in the investment management industry i was very well paid for a few years and uh, my uh, colleagues were taking turns at hosting the Christmas party for the office and you know people would go to their villas with columns and swimming pools and so on and when it was my turn I said well actually you know I can't host the party because I live in a rented little cottage in Berkeley and I love living in a small place and I couldn't you know and everybody was shocked shocked that I you know was not living in a villa <laughs> even though at the time I could have afforded it but I always thought, you know, I actually have what I need and I rather have more time and more flexibility than being on this treadmill where every time my salary goes up, I'll ratchet up my standard of living so that, uh, you know, I'm always, you know, having to run on that treadmill. And the choices I made allowed me, you know, to take time off, to be an artist for a number of years, right now working on the great turning and a lot of this work is volunteer work and it's uh, uh, work that I really feel passionate about but doesn't necessarily pay and it doesn't matter because you know I don't have to keep up with anybody and I have enough to live on but it sounds like you're well connected within and, and really basing how you know how you want to live your life on, on those internal measures and, and values and I think, you know, that's the education that we need to provide people. But I guess it still is a lot lot harder for a lot of people to be able to do that too. I mean, if you've had, um, you know, a few years of a very successful high-paying career that has allowed you to, to put some of those basic needs a little bit more at ease, um, yeah, great. And I absolutely admire your, your position there of, you know what, I've got my basic needs met. I earn more money. It doesn't mean I need to upgrade the car, the house, everything else. Like I can still live at that level of standard without doing all that. And I think that's where society has us educated wrong. We think we, as soon as we get more money, we have to spend it and somehow improve um, the the material possessions that we, we have around us, which is not right. the case. But I guess there's still a lot of people out there that aren't in that position where they're, they're working to pay their bills because they've got to rent and they've got to pay food and they've got a family. And, you know, perhaps they can't just trade off, um, you know, I'm going to not work as much and I'm going to spend more time at home because they just simply can't. They've got to pay the bills. Yeah, but sometimes people need to be a little bit creative. I remember, you know, I come from Italy, and mm. uh, in Italy, when you work, you have basically started from the first year four weeks of vacations off, you know, paid vacation. And when I came to the United States, I studied. Then so I everyone everyone had that in Italy? Four weeks at the yeah, start of the year? Yeah, four minimum, and, and then you go up from there five, six, you know, people that have a certain seniority can get to six weeks of paid vacation every year, which is kind of nice. So and we, uh, we really like that. And when I came to the United States and I applied for this job and, you know, I was, you know, just out of school. Right. Mm. And they said, uh, oh, okay. When I asked about a vacation, I say, well, you know, you'll have one week of paid vacation for the first year and then you get two for the next five years. 
and then and then you know you get three weeks off and i said i'm, I'm sorry i cannot work for that i'm not interested and so i guess they were interested enough of, uh, in hiring me that they came back and uh you know i negotiated having four weeks right off the bat which was more than the CEO of the company at the time. <laughs> mm. And then every year when they were offering me a raise, I would say, how about you give me half the raise and one extra week of paid vacation, right? And so at the end of the day, in, in uh, around you know five years later, I had seven weeks of paid vacation and I had still a good, decent salary, you know. Um, you know, it was not anything exorbitant, but was enough for my needs. And yes, I could have made more money if I decided to, you know, have less free time, but mm. I really valued, you know, having time to go back to home. Italy once, once a year and so on. So those trade-offs, you know, can be done even within a uh, corporation sometimes. This was a small, you know, yeah. private company. I so. suppose most, most of the population aren't, aren't mathematicians um, either. You know, if you look at the, the core working force of the, the population, I don't know if most people would have much luck going to their employer saying, look, you give me an extra week holiday and and um, you don't have to give me a pay rise because they're not even getting pay rises at the moment, you know? I know. I mean, that's the other thing. Is a lot so of this is, how do, we, how do we have this great turning where people can become, you know, more... And I, I guess it's that awareness because I, I do agree that, you know, a lot of people in that in that working force perhaps don't use their money as wisely as they could um but there still is a limitation there for those well you know that's the other thing we need to keep in mind is that uh, we we have right now a pretty unfair economic system that tends to reward capital more than labor hmm. right i mean if you think about the united states you know in the 60s labor was uh, was getting about 60% of the gdp and capital was getting about 40% and now it's the opposite. You know, the, the labor is getting 40% of the GDP and the capital 60%. So we've, over time, you know, the way we wrote our laws, our tax system and so on, we've privileged more and more the owners of capital over those that are providing the labor. And so at least, I don't know how the situation is in, uh, in Australia, but in the United States, the minimum wage is $7.70 an hour. Wow. Mm. which I guarantee you, you can't do anything. I mean, there are people that are working full-time and they're still below the poverty line. Yeah. While, you know, the very rich have all sorts of ways of uh, sheltering their assets and not paying taxes, and they get, you know, 2017, they got a big tax cut that favored them, right? So there is a, a fundamental injustice in our society, yeah. which has been really brought to light during the COVID pandemic, where you see that what we call essential workers have almost been like sacrificial workers. I mean, we really didn't treat them um, with the respect they need, and they, yet they were doing all the essential work for us to be safe in our homes and be fed again and so on. So that's certainly something that uh, we need to address as a society. And I think it's part of the great turning is to change those institutions and our systems of laws and taxation and so on to make sure that everybody's taken care of and that if you work, you have a dignified life. And mm. right now, that's not the case in at least in the United States. There are a lot of people that work really hard mm. and they cannot have a dignified life because we've um, that's how it's set up. 
have very unfair system that mm. we put in place. So how do we go about changing these institutions so it's fairer for everyone? Because I, I feel that it's a great thing to, to be working on and it'd be great to see um, the transition. But I almost feel that at this point, um, the people with the power won't allow it to happen for uh, obvious reason. Well, what we can do is we can highlight uh, examples of what the Great Journey would look like. So, for example, if you're thinking about an economic activity that would be structured uh, in, a, in a better way is, for example, a worker cooperative, right? A worker-owned cooperative is a place where labor is not seeing as a cost that you have to reduce as much as possible to increase the profits because the labor actually owns the place. And so uh, a cooperative will never say, oh, we're going to fire ourselves and move the work to China because our profits are going to be higher. Right. And so that's an example of an economic activity that can be uh, put in place and taking care of those that create the value, which is which are the workers in terms of investing, which I think is the area that I'm focused on. We need to make sure that our investments are not extractive, that that our returns don't come at the expense of other people or workers or ecosystems around the world. And maybe, I don't know if, if um, it makes sense for me to tell you a little bit the, the story that led me to leave the finance industry and a, w- a very well-paid job in 2009. Hmm. Um, go for it. Shall I, or do you think yeah, yeah. I'm running out of time? No, no, go for it. Uh, so I was working for this uh, <clears throat> very well-respected investment management firm. We were managing $20 billion in emerging markets equities, and we were the fund worldwide with the best track record over 10 years. And a lot of our clients were uh, endowments and foundations, including environmental foundations. Okay, and we were doing great. We had a very quantitative process because I was a mathematician, so I found myself in this group of quants, building you know computer models to to build this portfolio. And uh, one year, when our performance was really good, I was curious and looked at the individual companies in the portfolio and found a couple of palm oil company in Malaysia that had destroyed the habitat of the orangutan, had basically destroyed tens of thousands of acres of rainforest and planted a monocrop of palm oil plants. Hmm. And those companies did great that year, in part also because they got a lot of carbon credits for planting trees. Hmm. (laughs) And here we were, you know, think about, I I donated to those environmental foundations for their great work conserving habitat and then I was finding, finding myself in my professional capacity managing the same money and growing it at the expense of those very habitat for which those foundations were created to protect. And that was the disconnect in my mind that made me leave the finance industry. Yeah. And I realized that a lot of the financial returns are similarly extractive, maybe not all, but a lot of them. And, you know, if you think about publicly traded companies, of course, they're trying, you know, Uh, The news today uh, was out that uh, workers with Amazon in the United States are rebelling against the new super shift of 10 and a half hours. So now Amazon want to have their workers put in 10 and a half half hour shifts. You can see in this particular case that that would be very profitable for the company. The people that are investing in Amazon will get more money, but that money and that return comes at the expense of the workers. Hmm. The workers are, are, are you know, squeezed even more. 
but a lot of the people that have their mutual funds and so on uh, don't understand the extent to which those companies and those investments are extractive and are taking value from somewhere else. And so the idea of non-extractive finance is basically finance that allows an economic activity that could not exist without those investments and shares fairly that new economic activity, the new economic value that's being created between those who create it, which is the workers, and the investors that provided the capital. And that's, you know, a rare form of, uh, of finance, but that's the finance of the new turning, the great turning. It's basically a finance that is there to create economic activity, not financial manipulations, not buying back shares to boost up the stock price, not, you know, derivatives or other very complex instruments that enrich simply the financial sector and do not add much value to society, right? So that's that's what I'm, you know, looking at and focusing on. Hmm. A big challenge ahead of you, Marco. <laughs> I'm doing my best. Look, I, I get out of it. I mean, and I think this is a really important point. I think for anyone listening out there today, the idea of focusing more on your values and, and aligning your life to that, uh, 100% critical. And it may not be easy to do, but like Marco said, is is getting creative, um, being curious and and finding those solutions that may allow you, you know, in time to more closely align to those core values of yours. Um, the biggest side of things, um, I'll leave that in your hands, Marco, I think. Um, the the great turning, I guess, I guess if more of us align ourselves with our values, hopefully that, that will help these institutions shift as well. Yeah, and one good first step in practice is gratitude. Because to a certain extent, the, the system as it is designed right now works because we feel a sense of lack. And mm. a lot of the time, the activities we engage in and our desire to earn more money and to push really hard is really a way to compensate for the sense of luck. Yeah. And so having uh, developing gratitude and the practice of generosity can really be transformative hmm. because, you know, they are a counter, an antidote to that sense of luck that the system would like us to feel uh, through, you know, advertising and uh, the drive to, you know, um, compare ourselves with others and to consume more and so on. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a good topic of conversation and um, certainly a lot to, to think about. Marco, how can... Um... How can people best reach you? Well, the best way to reach me is uh, my website, ek4t.com. Four is the number four. I am also teaching in uh, May a course called Towards Aware and No Harm Investing. If people are curious about understanding you know, how the large systems work, um, the implications for investing and what are the options out there, for moving our money in a direction that is not extractive and is not doing damage. Mm. So if people are curious about that, they can uh, find some information on my website. What we do courses, there's a course that I'm teaching again in uh, in May and people are welcome to take a look at that. That's awesome. I'll stick that website in the show notes guys so you can pick it out, um, pick it up there and, and link. Um, Marco Vangelisti, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for sharing. Thank you, Lee. I enjoyed it. Everyone out there listening, thank you. And until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. 
Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there, and also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link and help support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there, breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Martin Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.